Good morning, good afternoon, good night, dear listeners, and thank you for tuning back into a new episode of The Mental Manager. Um, today is a very special session for us. It's uh, it's Martin and Obsimi who are here, and we are joined by the wonderful Marcus Kauke, and uh, we're, we're very excited to have him on, and throughout the podcast, you'll, you'll see why. He's been coaching uh, leaders and high-performing salespeople in very high-pressure environments throughout his career, so I can't wait to pick his brains. But before we do that, I would like to invite Marcus Martin and, and myself to just check on our current mental health state. Um, so for, for all of you that are listening right now, it's 6.30 a.m. for Marcus. It's 7.30 for us. So this is the time where we'll find out if we're better in the morning or in the evening. So Marcus, as our guest, on a scale of one to five, how are you today? Five. Always Excellent. Five. Always five. I like it. Yeah. And <laughs> I've had a lovely lockdown as well. So it suits my the natural grumpy personality to be isolated. <laughs> um, I've thoroughly enjoyed the last five months. <laughs> well, and you know, if you're lucky or unlucky, depending on which way you look at it, you may have another five months of that coming. So <laughs> I, re I reckon we've got another 18. So there you go. <laughs> oh, cool. Just to uh, raise everyone's spirits. <laughs> Indeed. And Martin, how about you? Well, I'm also, I'll, uh, I'll follow Marcus and, uh, and also state that I'm, uh, I'm on a five. Since our last episode where we spoke about, about daily habits, I've been better at sticking to mine, which have given me um, some really good starts on my mornings. Um, so five for me as well. How could you not be five? You've got two Nerf guns on your wall. <laughs> I actually got more than that. <laughs> For everyone listening, we've oh, wow. got the video <laughs> chat on, and uh, Martin's got an impressive collection of Nerf guns on his wall. I didn't realize. I do. I must that say that it that it is together with my sons. That is the excuse, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got a collection of Nerf guns. It's got nothing to do with my children. <laughs> it's mainly for shooting clients. I'm a pacifist. I have. I do do not believe in Nerf guns. <laughs> but I'm still five. Yeah, no, it's it's been excellent yesterday. Yesterday I was um highlight of my day certainly was being a guest on Marcus's podcast. We'll link to that in the show notes as well and uh make sure that you know where to find Marcus after this chat. But before we we talk even more about nerf guns or pacifism, one of the two, Marcus, may I ask you to just talk a little bit about yourself, about your history, about what you do and what how come that you came to this coaching role, build your coaching business focused on, I guess, performance management. And as part of that, I don't know if it's coincidental or not, but for me, a high performer and mental health, it kind of really goes hand in hand. Yeah, I think if you're not strong mentally and you're not mentally tough, then it's difficult to sustain the consistency. So my career started, I don't know, 35 years ago, flogging advertising, that kind of thing. And I went through career in recruitment and then got into software sales. And we got we all got made redundant on the 23rd of December. I'd just come out of hospital having had major surgery. So my boss came over to fire me on the day just before Christmas. And my old CFO had left a voicemail for me whilst I was in hospital inviting me to come in for interview. And on my first day at this place, uh, they introduced me to 
some Sava sales system materials. And so by then I'd read about 300 books on sales. So I thought this would just be more stuff that would be out of date when Queen Victoria was a kid. And I wasn't wildly impressed by the largely empty workbook. So I shoved it in my inbox for five months, which is my genuinely my one regret in my career. Then eventually I took this stuff home. And in 15 minutes, I had 10 Road to Damascus moments. And the realization that I never had to present again to sell, I never had to propose again to sell, I never had to close again, I never had to handle objections again. And uh, I was introduced to a number of concepts around transactional analysis, which I know Martin wants to talk about in some more detail in a minute, and introduced to some Sander rules. And these rules, um, I thought, were uh, constraining. But then I realized that actually within that constraint, you had as much creativity as you liked. And they were guide rails to keep you safe. And I started applying this stuff. My sales plummeted from a terrible one in 20 close rate to nothing for about four weeks. And then suddenly they shot up to one in three, one in two. And I was doubling my prices every 12 weeks. And then I was closing about I'm pretty much 100% of qualified prospects. And I thought at that point, it's crazy. Why don't I just do this for a living? So that's how I got into it. How long have you been just focused on the coaching and the, the Sandler part? The training and coaching, 16 years and one year using it before then. So 2004, I started doing this. So 2004, basically, yeah, I've been coaching 16 years people in high pressure environment and my first question would be what throughout these 16 years can you see a common denominator across all of these people so what are the most common things that you see people struggle with in these environments do you mind if i swear absolutely <laughs> not <laughs> they're all fucked up and it starts with your family philip larkins wrote a larkin wrote a poem called this be the verse And it goes, they fuck you up, your mum and dad. They don't mean to, but they do. They fill you with all the faults they had and they add some extra just for you. And that's the human condition. Every one of us is a sick little puppy. We're all children trapped in adult bodies. And to varying degrees, we're messed up. We have scripts that tell us what we can and can't do. We should on ourselves. We are creatures of habit. Unfortunately, a lot of the habits that we've learned aren't good habits. Now, if you're going to be a slave to habits, you may as well be a slave to good ones. And habit is really the single biggest defining factor in terms of performance. If you have a whining, moaning, bitching, grumbling, making excuses habit before they hire you, you're going to bring that with you. If, on the other hand, you have a planning habit, a prospecting habit, a listening habit, a questioning habit. If you are well organized and you have a prioritization habit, if you have the habit of saying no to things that are non-core, then you're more likely to succeed. And the problem that I see across, you know, it, it's universal, is that often we have this, or we all have this voice in our head. It's not that you're crazy. That's normal, that internal dialogue. <laughs> Unfortunately, most of us have an internal dialogue that isn't nice. It's hyper self-critical. 
and it's judgmental. And this is called a critical parent script. And it says, you always, you never, you piece of shit, you're such a disappointment. You've messed up again. Yeah. And that's really debilitating. And most of what I do, if I'm being perfectly honest, is try and get you out of your own way. One of my favorite rules is if your foot's hurting, you're probably standing on your own toe. And so often that's the case. And we find ourselves going into these little subroutines of self-sabotage. Or we make crappy choices. Procrastination is a choice. You choose to watch cat videos instead (laughs) of making your calls. You choose to shuffle paper instead of organize uh, your prospect list. You choose to call low in an organization rather than prepare, do your research, and call high in the organization. And as a result, your sales cycles drag on. You're constantly behind. You're missing target. You don't have enough in your pipeline. And the single biggest shift that you can implement in any salesperson's life, I think, is getting them into a prospecting habit where they have in the kind of businesses that you and I are in, at least five unique effective conversations every single day. So that means you make the call, you get past the gatekeeper, you get through to the decision maker, and you contract with them that within the next 30 seconds, you're going to explain the purpose of your call. And at the end, they're going to decide whether to invite you in or hang up. Now, if you do that five times, every single day, chances are you will have a full pipeline and you will, over a seven-month period, have around 300% more than you need moving from the qualified stage to the closable stage in your funnel. Over 12 months, you'll have 500%. Now, that gives you choice. So the second rule I want you to learn is you prospect for choice. And as a manager, it is not your job to carry a quota. And this is, again, another huge problem that I see, which is most managers are player managers, and that almost never works. We did some research at the beginning of this year, 2020, and we identified that only 6% of managers are fit for purpose. 94% are not. And if we look at the reasons why this is, most managers are tapped on the shoulder and told, Silke, congratulations, your idiot boss has just been fired. You're now a manager. And the skill sets are wildly different, aren't they? When you look back at when you were selling and producing versus being a manager, how different were the roles and functions and responsibilities and pressures? Very much so. And if I recall correctly, you sort of have a formula as to how much time or what percentage of time should a manager actually be spending on doing versus creating and, uh, and leading? Can you elaborate well, um, on that a little? Yeah, Mike Michalowicz came up with a lovely model, the 4D model, which is do, decide, delegate, and design. Now, depending on where you are uh, in the cycle and depending on the size of your team, doing should be maybe... 10 to 15%. Deciding should be a tiny proportion. You should only make big, important decisions that the people that you've hired can't make for whatever reason, and they have to delegate those decisions up to you, or they never get to see them because they're strategic. Then 
the delegation piece is really important. Delegating means that you've hired people you trust and then you trust them and you give them responsibility and they are responsible. You may be accountable, but they are responsible. And then the design part is really where you should be spending your time as a manager, as a leader. And this is where you're designing systems and processes, where you're designing your team, where you're refining and uh, improving the people that you've got. Now, in terms of the doing, the doing of a manager actually isn't about going out and producing, although you must meet customers. But you do that on uh, ride-alongs. Ride-alongs are where the salesperson leads and you are there as an observer. You are not there to say, you know, why don't I show you how I do it? Because you're an ass if you do that. You disempower them and they learn nothing. Okay. Now, I'll recalibrate my percentages. I think you should be doing about 50%. But the 50% is coaching. It's training, it's recruitment, that sort of thing. When I'm talking about the other type of doing, it's the day-to-day doing stuff. That's not what you should be up to. Um, Your job, your only objective is to help the team hit their quota. So you have four functions. Your job description can be broken down into these four functions. Hire the best people. If you hire the best people, 95 to 98% of your management problems go out the window. Then get the best out of them. That means a proper pre-onboarding, 120-day onboarding process where you commit 25 to 30% of your time to helping onboard a new hire. It means training. It means coaching. The research on this is absolutely categoric. If you coach your individual reps for three to three and a half hours a month, the average quota attainment is 105%. If you coach for less than that, which most people do none, if I'm being perfectly honest, which is why most managers are not fit for purpose, then the average quota attainment is 40 to 60%. The reason you don't have time to coach is you're not bloody well coaching. So coach and learn how to do it properly. So we'll talk about coaching in a minute. And then the third part, is make sure that they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. Now, what this means is do not go out and invest massively in every shiny piece of technology. Don't make your CRM system a tool for audit purposes so that you can give management information that they're never going to use anyway. And certainly don't use it to feed the finance function. The CRM's purpose and only purpose is to help salespeople sell more, more often to more people more easily. And if your CRM doesn't do that, then shame on you. And then the final piece is help clear roadblocks and protect them from acts of idiocy from above. Your job is to protect your salespeople from stupid decisions from your senior management and to help them clear the path. Now, On the subject of coaching, coaching is about asking questions and have them come up with the answer. Coaching is not telling. And this is, again, where most people go horrifically wrong. There's a wonderful book called The Sales Coach's Playbook by Bill Bartlett, B-A-R-T-L-E-T-T, which is a must read. If you haven't read that and you're not applying those principles or something similar, 
then you're failing your salespeople and you are failing as a manager. And that's failing in role, not as a human being, which we'll talk about as well, the difference between identity and role. Absolutely. And just one thing I want to dive back into, actually two things, but let me start with the first thing. So you said hire the best people, which makes perfect sense because once you've hired the best people, a lot of the mental stresses that a manager has to deal with will go away because you can trust yeah. those people to do a good job without having to always worry about it or um, something that I tend to do, and I'm sure a lot of other people uh, would also tend to do. You would just, not because you don't trust them, but because you want to keep everyone happy and you want to make everyone's life as easy as possible, which is not the job of a manager. But you then tend to be more tactical than those 10 to 15% and just do a lot more than you should be rather than letting them do it. And one concept that you've introduced me to has really changed the way that I hire, which is not only the fact that you should always be hiring, not just when you need people, but to essentially build up your base. But um, I believe there's, uh, there's, the model is called the search model. And uh, one key factor of that model is that I think nowadays a, lo a lot of companies and managers go out and say, hey, here's the job description. Go and find oh. me people to fit that. And that's yeah. mainly about skill set. But the search model really talks also about the habits. And I think that the habit part in, is, is so much more important than skills that they may already have at that moment. Because skills is something that you can learn. You can teach people how to follow a particular process or how to speak to a partner in our case. But habits, that is something that is built going back to the childhood. So if you don't have good habits, then it's going to be very, very difficult to build those in. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, first of all, no one pops out their mother's womb able to sell or manage their acquired skills. Now, the search model stands for skills, experience, attitudes, beliefs, and values, historical results, cognitive abilities, and habits. And you use that to design your ideal hire. And the search model needs to be adapted after someone leaves. So this is where you do a proper exit interview and you find out what they actually do. I mean, theoretically, as a manager, you should already know. But when you're replacing somebody, always hire better. So a couple of rules. The first is better no breath than bad breath. The problem is that often people run the mantra the other way around, which is better bad breath than no breath. But if you hire badly, it's exceptionally expensive. A wrong hire in enterprise can cost between 35 and 125 times salary. In enterprise channel, that can be, you can move the decimal point to the right. It's extremely expensive. Now, If you look at the leading indicators, they are not the traditional things that appear on a job description, which are skills, historical experience, and historical results. Most job descriptions, frankly, you can wipe your bum with for all the value they bring. They are utterly, utterly useless as predictors of future success if you hire for them. Skills can be learned. Experience, frankly, is irrelevant. I've been doing this. I, I'm in the core of instant experts, and I've worked across 500 different segments of the market. Six conversations is pretty much all you need to make up for lack of experience. 
If you go and meet six prospects with somebody else, that's enough to learn the language, the structures, the pressures, most of the pain indicators, if you're doing your setup correctly. So experience complete drivel, and it is the least important factor. So any of you that insist on experience, you are missing out. I'll give you a great example of this. I have um, a chap I'm helping to place at the moment, and he's worked in six or seven different industry sectors. He is one of the best salespeople you will ever meet, but he keeps getting rejected. They say because of experience. I think partially also because of racism. He's black, and I've seen him being rejected despite the fact he was so far ahead of everybody else in the pack. But experience is the thing that they always throw at him. Oh, well, you don't have experience in our sector. Who cares? Utterly irrelevant. And uh, historical results. Historical results don't really tell you anything. They could say that Martin was lucky or Silke was being carried or that Marcus happened to be in the right place at the right time. It doesn't tell you anything about their future performance. Hmm. Repeated past performance is a good indicator. But just past results, so what? In sales, we're only as good as our last quarter. And the reality is that we may have been at a company that just happened to be on the ascendant. Or we may have been in a company that had three blue letters with three uh, with seven blue lines and the logo get us, got us through the door. You know, the number of people that I know who've come from large corporates with big uh, identifiable brands and people buy because that's what environment they're in. You know, they're an Oracle environment. They're an IBM environment. They're an HP environment. And they continue to buy that stuff because that's familiar. That doesn't show anything about their selling skills. So in terms of the things that really matter as predictors of success, attitudes, beliefs, and values, what's their attitude towards themselves? That's a really crucial question. What's their self-concept like? Do they like the person they look at in the mirror? Do they have faith in themselves? Do they believe that they can succeed? Are they people who believe that you should never lie to the customer and never lie to customers? Do they believe in radical honesty and candor? Do they have a strong money concept? Do they see themselves as their customers equal? Because if they don't, then they're going to struggle in sales. Then cognitive abilities, the ability to learn and adapt. Darwin was never talking about survival of the brawniest, because if he was, then yeah, we'd all be T-Rex food, you know, meteors permitting. Um, and it, you know, it's the one that could adapt best. When the meteor struck, it was the little mouse-like creature that survived, that then, you know, as a mammal, evolved into us. Uh, about resilience, how do you bounce back from adversity? And obviously, today's podcast is largely about resilience. Do you have the capacity to accept failure as a learning opportunity? Do you have the aptitude to adjust to current economic conditions? If you don't, then you're really going to struggle. Particularly in, if you're in tech, your market is moving incredibly fast. If you're in a high-tech, hyper-growth scale-up, if you can't adapt, you are going to burn out in two, three quarters. And you'll have seen this yourself. You, know, you guys are growing 60 to 70% a quarter. 
there will be people that you've hired historically, probably not now because you'll have learned your lesson, but uh, there'll have been people who say, what, we're going to change it again? Yeah, this is the third time we've changed our process in a year. Well, yes. So you have to have that resilience and that adaptability. And then habits, a learning habit, really important. If a candidate doesn't have a learning habit, then they fall apart on this old proverb, which is, if you're green, you grow. If you're ripe, you rot. And there are an awful lot of very rotten salespeople out there who've become functionally illiterate. They haven't read anything apart from red top newspapers since they left school or university. And they haven't expanded their mind. They haven't improved. So one of the qualities that I look for is a learning habit. Now, the people, the people I train... I always teach the half a percent rule. You need to improve by half a percent a day. And this is just tapping into the the law of compound interest. Those who understand compound interest earn it. Those who don't, don't. And compound interest, if you take 100 pounds, 100 dollars, and you add half a percent interest per day, and you compound that, so you keep reinvesting it, at the end of a working year of 240 days, uh, you end up with 373 dollars. Now, if you can improve nearly three times every single year, that means in year one, you're about three times better. In year two, you're nine times better. In year three, you're 27 times better. So they play the long game, and they do this through lesson capture, three lessons a day, which they then apply and teach. Because the quicker you teach something, the sooner you're going to embed it, because in order to teach it, you have to understand it. Yeah, absolutely. So now now I can get off my soapbox. (laughs) (laughs) So that actually, Marcus, you got into um, onto a track that I wanted to to explore a bit more because I still remember that in um, in our very first session that we had with you, um, and you have worked as both as a business and uh, and career coach for I think it's safe to say for for both of us. I do remember that you said that people's behavior and beliefs as adults, that they have been formed as young children and that they develop their understanding and life scripts before that they turn seven. That was a very powerful statement to me back then. So can you can you speak a bit more about that and how that affects people uh, later in their lives? Yeah, I made it up. No. The reality is that what we've got is a child, a parent, an adult, and a child script. Now, up until the age of zero to six, it's like an old eight-track tape recorder on permanent loop. And it's recording. It's just constantly recording everything you see, everything you hear. And this is where you learn your life scripts. You learn about how, what, what, what your position is in life, You learn about money and uh, how it should be treated and how you should respond to it. You learn about respecting your elders, not interrupting busy people, about uh, money. You know, does money grow on trees? Is money the root to all evil? Having money uh, a sign that you are a parasite who's climbed over the backs of others? Or is money just a token of exchange that tells you how much other people value what you do. What's your position? Your, what are your rights uh, with respect to the customer? Are you their equal? If you don't see yourself conceptually 
as your prospects equal, then you're really going to struggle because you'll always put them on a pedestal. And so you have this parent-child dynamic instead of an adult-to-adult relationship. And this scripting is really, really powerful because after the age of six, it stops recording and then it just plays in the background and it colors how you perceive everything. Now, your values and your beliefs go back 75 years before the date of your birth. So take right down the year of your birth and subtract 75 years. And that's where your belief systems began because it's your grandparents that are sat on your parents' shoulders that are sat on your shoulders. And you find yourself, you, I mean, how many times have you caught yourself and you say, shit, I just sounded like my dad or my mom? Oh, yes, yeah. I recognize that. Yeah, yeah. and, and yeah, that, that's where your self-loathing often kicks in because there's <laughs> previous scripting and baggage. And we suffer from this thing called reach back and afterburn. Reach back is where we reach back into our past and we drag a previous negative feeling into the present and we feel it and experience it all over again. So if you are bullied at school and you have, um, you know, you listen to a piece of music and it drags you back there, um, or there's a smell and it drags you back there, or there's an incident on TV and it reminds you of something negative and you drag it back, do you think the bully even knows you exist? They don't. But we carry this shit around with us. And it's really debilitating. It's, it's damaging to the nth degree. So we need to recognize this scripting and we need to work on it because it's really difficult to replace that. And the problem is it never really gets erased. But what we can do is replace it with better habits. So we have to start new behaviors. Then we have to turn those behaviors into habit. And we have to create the neural pathways so that it offers us a better option, a better alternative. And if we don't, under pressure, we will revert back to what we learned first. And this is where we tend to fall into what we call the drama triangle. And the drama triangle is one of the most powerful illustrators of just how messed up we are. So you have the victim voice. So if you imagine an equilateral triangle on its sharp point, and at the bottom you have the voice of the victim, why me? This is so unfair. This always happens. And their other favorite refrain, uh, which uh, encourages rescuing managers to come along, is save me, help me. Yeah. Now, then you have the persecutor. So that's on the top left corner. The persecutor comes along and says, you piece of shit, you ruin the whole day. You always do that. You salespeople, you're all the same. Women, drivers, Danes, bloody Vikings, and all of this kind of stuff. And they'd sort of come with the jabby index finger and the pronoun you, stabbing you in the face or the chest. And they diminish you at an identity level. The rescuer is incredibly disempowering because what it does is it creates the culture where people say, well, it's probably not worth doing because Silka will do it for me. And she'll just interfere and they've become a micromanager. And the net result of that is that people just coast and they get very frustrated and you end up creating churn and your good people will leave, not your bad people. The bad people love it because they can just play, you know, they, they can do as little as humanly possible. And a persecutor manager will diminish the possibility that people will take risk 
they will play to the lowest common denominator to avoid being noticed and punished. And if you're a victim manager, then all you'll be surrounded by are other victims and you'll have a pity party. And that never works out well. So but just be aware. But Bruce Lee, my favorite philosopher, was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. And the somewhere else is this thing called the winner's triangle. So instead of this red triangle on its point with the victim, persecutor, rescuer, imagine a nice shiny green triangle on its flat base. And the winner's triangle is all about being authentic. The drama triangle, drama thrives on, uh, ego thrives on drama, sorry. Um, And the drama triangle is all about ego. Um, The winner's triangle is all about being fully authentic and fully present. And instead of being a victim, you're vulnerable. Vulnerable comes from the Latin word vulnerabilis, which means to make yourself woundable, to put yourself in harm's way and do it anyway. It's an act of courage. Instead of being a persecutor, you're assertive. So you establish clear boundaries, clear expectations, and you make it clear what lines may or may not be crossed. And you assert yourself. You don't, you're not aggressive. And instead of being a rescuer, you're nurturing and you're empathic. So a good example of this is I'm running late for a meeting and I phone up and I say, Martin, I'm running late, bloody traffic, sat-nav took me all the way around the houses, I'm doing my best, it's not my fault. Okay, that's classic drama triangle. Winner's triangle version of that is, Martin, I am so sorry, it's entirely my fault. Please forgive me. I I left too late, I misjudged the traffic. I'm going to be about 20 minutes late, and I know you're a stickler for uh, being on time. I wouldn't be offended, and I completely understand, if you want to tell me to go and boil my head, I'll chalk this up to experience and turn around, and you can claw back the remaining 40 minutes of the hour. Yeah? Mm. Now, that's a grown-up, authentic, honest version where you take ownership and personal responsibility. And operating from there, while simple, is incredibly hard because it means that you have to take personal responsibility. It means that you have to own your 50% of every relationship that you have and the outcomes and uh, the consequences. It means that you have to be open to criticism. You have to take personal responsibility, which means that not only do you have to bear the consequences, but you have to atone and make up. And that's tough because a lot of us are too fragile in our ego to do that. But what's interesting is if you operate from there and you live your life from there, then you don't end up in conflict anywhere near as much. In fact, you find ways to neutralize it very simply. By being vulnerable, it is an act of courage. And people appreciate people of courage. If you are assertive, not aggressive, People recognize what those boundaries are and they respect them. And if you are nurturing and empathic, people will actually seek you out. What I found since I learned this about nine, 10 years ago and really started putting it into practice is that it's like being a magnet. People will come to you because they will get genuine empathy, not sympathy, not pity, but people, people want to be understood. They want to feel felt, they want to be heard, and they want to be understood. And as a salesperson or a manager, 
if you can exude that quality, people will seek you out. Now, Google did a study called Project Oxygen, which every manager should read. And the number one quality that defined whether a manager was good was would the people in their team invite and encourage people they liked and trusted to join that team because of the manager. The ability to do the job, being a salesperson, came eighth. So there's another valuable lesson from this as well, which is top performers are often not wired well to be top managers. Often the top performer gets taken away from being a top producer, and so you end up with a double whammy, which is you lose a good producer and you gain a crap manager who then destroys a team. Mm. Um, Often the best managers, if you're looking at their performance as salespeople, are the ones who have the deepest and widest penetration within their accounts because that's a really good indicator that they are a good listener, a good observer. They're good at understanding the human condition. They're more strategic and they are really good on empathy. Because to be a manager, you have to be highly empathic. You have to want other people to succeed. It's not about you. You are not there to be their friend. In fact, if you want to be their friend, then you will probably do them a disservice. Your job is to get the best out of them. Your job is to help them achieve their full potential, which is why you have to be a supervisor to a small degree. Initially, you have to be a lot of supervisor while you're onboarding them. But once you've onboarded them, then your role should move to trainer and man- uh, trainer and uh, coach. You should go on ride-alongs. You should have an operating rhythm that means that you can manage with a light touch, that there's consistency, there's process, and that you spend a lot of your time building and designing systems investing in just enough of the right technology to help them do their best work. And that is a very, very rare skill. The ability to do that, and the the, the question I ask managers and leaders now is what is the minimum level of technology that you can provide your salespeople so that they can do their best work every day and still maintain human relationships with their customers? Because that is the defining factor. If the people who have the most human relationships in their marketing and in their selling are the ones that succeed the most. If you look at Phycotic's rise, it is through having really close working relationships with your customers. Developing the product because your customers who are in your ideal market, ideal customer profile, are telling you we need this stuff. Uh, taking criticism from them, putting yourself in a position of vulnerability where you are accountable to them. Now, many people, my pal Jerry Lemberg, rest his soul, he was one of the four original investors in Microsoft and in Oracle. Uh, He was one of the four original founders of Fairchild Semi, which was a precursor to Intel. And He used to describe entrepreneurs as people who produced elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. And they they go out and they produce a product thinking, oh, we'll build a better mousetrap and people will come to us. Doesn't work that way. 
if you don't really possess empathy and you're not coaching your people to understand what it is the customer really needs and wants, then chances are you will produce a terrible product that has no life. And your salespeople will struggle. And there's enough pressure in the, uh, the competitive marketplace for them not to need to compete internally. You know, persecuting managers, they'll divide and rule. They'll try and get their salespeople to fight amongst themselves. Why not get them to learn amongst themselves, to help each other? A rising tide raises all boats. Mm. And weekly sales meetings should not be listening to this death march of people lying from their work of fiction, also known as a forecast. Every time you go to a sales meeting, your salespeople should be excited to turn up, learn a load and leave energized, not drained and thinking that was an hour of my life I'm never going to get back. That is so true. And there are so, so many things that we have been through also in the time where you, um, where you worked as a, as a business coach uh, to us that is uh, so valuable to, to talk through again in respect of time. Because I'm sure that, that that we could could spend a lot more time with you, Marcus. I actually have a few more questions that I really want to go, to get through. If that's okay, you can invite me back. <laughs> and okay. and I think we should. I think we should. There are so many things that we can that we can uh, go a lot more into. I'll take them in terms of uh, of most important. And when I was preparing for this, the questions. Then my my ten year old son came up to me and he he was asking. He asked what I was doing, and I said I'm preparing questions. And he asked if he could could ask you a question too. So, oh, cool. so I allowed him to, to come up with a question, and his question was, what are you doing in the morning to make sure it becomes a good day? And I think that's a great question in terms of also your starting point of, uh, of saying that you always is five. I like a good breakfast, and my calendar is already filled. That's the, the key. It's not what you've done in the morning. It's what you've done before. So diary blocking has been an absolute godsend for me. So filling your month and your quarter out well in advance so that you've got a structure to your day. The average salesperson is only productive for 25 to 35% in any given working day. The average time in front of the customer is only 12 to 21% of the working day, which means that the average salesperson is only highly productive and in front of customers 3 to 7.35% of the working day. I spend seven, eight hours a day speaking to customers uh, and clients or to prospects. And the net result of that is I have choice. I can turn away any business that I like. I'm never under any pressure. I haven't felt pressure in my role for at least 13 years. And that's a blissful place to be. Now, I would say that I do exercise, but that's fallen by the wayside um, a couple of years back. And I'd say I eat healthily, which I don't. And I used to meditate as well. So again, those are three really good things that you can do. But preparation. In the military, there are the six Ps. Prior planning prevents piss poor performance. And the more you plan, the more likely you are to be able to succeed. Because then you're working on a known structure on intentional activity. The problem is where you get distracted You know, the research on this is that for every distraction, it takes seven minutes to recover your concentration, plus the five, 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes it takes to do whatever has distracted you. So be ruthless about not taking inbound calls and whatever during your prospecting time. Turn off your email. Um, you know, I, I view email at the beginning and end of the day. 
but only after I've done my core behaviors. Email is a massive distraction, waste of time. I see that we're getting to the end of our time together, Marcus. That was a beautiful closing line, actually. And uh, we will most certainly be welcoming you back because we've got a lot more questions for you. Absolutely. And thank you so much for joining us today. It's, it's been a real pleasure. My Great pleasure. Start to thank the day. you so much for having me. Thanks, Martin. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you. Excellent.